0: are listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington, my research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structured prediction. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, provide a valuable perspective on how their research, and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Kevin Ellis, who will be starting as an assistant professor at Cornell, and is currently a research scientist at Common Sense Machines. His research focuses on machine learning and program induction, with the goal of building systems that generalize strongly, require less data, and acquire interpretable knowledge. Kevin's PhD thesis is titled Algorithms for Learning to Induce Programs, which he completed in 2020 at MIT's Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences, where he was co advised by Josh Tenenbaum and Armando solar Lazama. We discuss Kevin's work at the intersection of machine learning and program induction, first focusing on inferring graphics programs from images and drawings. Then we talk about Dreamcoder, a fascinating generalization that finds programs by automatically building a library of subroutines, and leveraging a search procedure guided by a neural network. We touch on various topics throughout, like programs versus language, classical versus modern techniques, and where he sees this area moving in the future. The Thesis Review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to follow us on Twitter, at ThesisReview. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com/slash thesisreview, or become a recurring supporter at patreon.com/slash thesisreview. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Kevin Ellis with Algorithms for Learning to Induce Programs on the Thesis Review. So in your thesis, your thesis deals with programs, program synthesis, program induction. We can think of like, you know, creating these programs, creating programs in general as a goal for artificial intelligence. Uh, and you you could also think about creating and understanding natural language as another goal. So just a fun question to start. like, Do you think that it'll ultimately be more difficult for AI systems to understand and create programs or to understand and create natural language? Uh, Well,
1: I think there's going to be different challenges in each case, and I wouldn't want to say that one is, uh, you know, going to be going to be harder, Um, right? So in order to really do uh, natural language, you I think have to, uh, it's it's sort of more AI complete than uh, program synthesis. Uh, you could, mm-hmm. for example, imagine a uh, really competent program synthesizer that really just doesn't know much about the world, but it's very good at like, you know, writing programs that uh, act as proofs of uh, difficult theorems. Um, mm-hmm. One dimension along which program synthesis might be harder is that uh, it's it's not, I think, going to be as uh, amenable to these big data, big deep learning types of methods. Um, like there's just not as much um, code out there, which is good to train on in the same way, I think, that there's a lot of good natural language out there that there is to train on. Um, mm-hmm. And if you think about how humans learn language and how they learn to code, they're actually really different. Uh, so for example, to first approximation, humans actually kind of can learn natural language just by hearing a bunch of stuff spoken to them and being in the real world. Whereas Mm -hmm. uh, no one attempts to learn how to code from scratch through immersion. Uh, We don't put uh, computer science freshmen uh, in front of a computer (laughs) that shows them GitHub and have them just uh, read it until they're a good hacker. So Mm -hmm. there's... Uh, In some sense, learning natural language is going to force you to engage with more general uh, stuff in AI, like uh, common sense, but there's a lot more data out there. And given the kinds of methods we have right now, which scale really well in AI, um, that data might unlock things a lot faster in natural language than it does for uh, programming languages. Uh, but taking like a more like philosophical sense on this, um, like do we do we uh, need systems which can process natural language in order to understand um, and use computer languages? Um, I'm not really sure that we do, or at least I think that there's a lot of interesting problems in program synthesis where you don't need natural language. So for example... Uh, converting perceptual input like images into uh, programs which can explain the structure of those images. So think about like getting some kind of holistic scene understanding by taking as input a scan or um, a video and then converting it into something that looks more like a graphics program. I'm not really convinced Mm -hmm. that you need something like natural language in order to get that off the ground. You need more of the core uh, combinational stuff that natural language gives you, like compositionality and reuse and um, like higher order operators and variable binding. Uh, But you don't necessarily need um, all the other stuff from natural language, like its ambiguity and the fact that it can engage with common sense knowledge and things like that.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. I guess another difference is that with natural language, you you have to have these notions of common sense or almost like feedback from other humans or from some environment in order to verify whether what you're saying is uh, kind of valid language. Whereas with programs, at least in some settings, you have some way of verifying the program, at least whether it's kind of like a well-formed program. And so the types of feedback in each situation seems a bit different.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you raise the communicative function of natural language. Um, one, the the thing that g- got me into like LISP and functional programming, um, and which influenced me a lot in my research was this book, The Structured Interpretation of Computer Programs, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of this classic book on LISP. Um, and I remember in the first chapter, it said something which really stuck with me, which is that... Uh, computer programs are meant first and foremost as a way of communicating algorithms to other human beings Mm. and only incidentally are executed by machines Um, i think you know that that's kind of a strong statement but there's this extra communicative function of programs which um, does actually kind of parallel some things about natural language like how we uh, try to say things which aren't just precise but also like informative or not just uh, correct but also like conform to certain like uh, pragmatic considerations. Mm-hmm. Um, and there also might be like analogs of pragmatics for writing programs, which help make them, uh, help, be- help allow them to better fulfill this communicative function of, uh, coding.
0: Right. Yeah. 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 So then you mentioned getting interested in functional programming. Was that before the PhD? Like, how did you get interested in this general area and then eventually decide to, uh, research during your PhD?
1: Yeah, so I I came at this um, when I took a computational cognitive science class um, as sort of toward the end of undergrad. Um, I took Josh Tannenbaum's computational cognitive science class. And I think at the same time, I was taking the theory of computation class. Um, So I was learning about Bayesian inference at the same time that I was learning about Kolmogorov complexity. Um, And one thing that I was really interested in um, and I still find interesting is uh, just the generality and flexibility of human intelligence. Um, and that, to me, seemed like one of the most puzzling things and one of the things that um, I most wanted to get some insight on by taking some cognitive science classes. Um, and the fact that I was t- studying cognitive science concurrently with learning about uh, some theory of computation and had some functional programming experience uh, made me wonder whether uh one way of getting the same kind of flexibility into uh, AI systems would be to allow them to uh, write new code. Uh, The motivation for this being that uh, if you wanted a kind of maximally general representation, then you'd want to have something which is Turing complete. Um, And so I, I sort of started out thinking that it would be great if we could make systems which could just explore arbitrary spaces of programs and then if they could actually do this efficiently, and if they actually were engineered in ways that scaled, then in principle, this would give you a knowledge representation, which uh, could capture a lot of the flexibility of uh, human intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't, I am really become more of a computer scientist. And I don't want to like take a uh, stand here on whether what's going on in human heads when they're Flexibly rearranging their knowledge and learning things, which may be very different from what they've learned in the past, is that they're actually, you know, uh, sort of reprogramming themselves in some interesting sense, or whether this is more of a useful metaphor which um, suggests certain ways of engineering me- machine intelligence. Mm-hmm. But this was, at least at the beginning, what got me uh, interested in this way of thinking about AI.
0: And then, like, your PhD, I guess, was in cognitive science at least in the thesis that's what it says but it's kind of at this intersection of uh, you know machine learning even programming languages especially some of the stuff we'll talk about with like the the refactoring aspects that were in the work Uh, and then also this cognitive science aspect so did you kind of explicitly go in with you know an interest more in one area over the other and nowadays do you have a preference for either or do you kind of view yourself as you know part of all three of these communities
1: so at the beginning i definitely thought of myself as uh maybe being a cognitive scientist Mm -hmm. and the reason for that is um that i think they ask really interesting questions and if i uh you know i i entered all this stuff just being really curious about how human minds work. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as I started grad school, it became clear to me that um, I just liked algorithms a lot and wanted to spend my time thinking about algorithms and working with uh, code and things like that. So I made Mm -hmm. more of a pivot to AI early on. Um, So maybe one way of putting it is I was drawn to the questions of cognitive science Uh, but to the methods of computer science.
0: Mm -hmm. I see. And then just as background, like for those who might not be familiar with it, um, could you just introduce these terms like program induction and program synthesis, since this is kind of a focus of your thesis work?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So program synthesis is the problem of coming up with algorithms which generate programs, so executable source code like Python or Java or some domain-specific language, uh, given a specification of what that program should do. So, for example, you might write down a logical formula which says I want a program which inputs a list, outputs a list, Uh, it will return a permutation of the original list, and um, uh, every element must be at least as large as the preceding element in the list mm-hmm. so that's a specification for a sorting algorithm and a program synthesizer would take as input that specification and then output source code which sorts list of numbers
0: mm-hmm.
1: program induction uh at least the way that i'm using it here refers to learning programs inductively so when you have an under constrained specification given by some uh, data. So maybe some input outputs, or maybe you have some examples of images generated from a program and you want to infer the kind of drawing or graphics routine that gave rise to it. Or you can imagine other more creative kinds of program reduction, like you hear some sounds and you want to come up with like the audio mixing circuit that gives rise to those sounds. And what all these problems have in common is that there's some kind of uh, inference going on. So there's ambiguity as to what the correct program is and you get some kind of evidence, um, some kind of outputs from the program or something like that. So it's uh, more like a learning problem and less like a, a planning problem or a constraint satisfaction problem. Whereas a lot of program synthesis, when you're giving like logical specifications, might be more like a planning problem. Like you have some goal state, you have some predicate that tells you if you've achieved that goal, and your job is to explore the space of source code until you meet that goal. So program synthesis is um, to a large degree motivated by the goal of automating software engineering. So coding is very hard for people. We often make mistakes in our code. These bugs can be costly. We want to make sure that um, our programs do what we want them to do. So if we could just write down in very precise terms what the program should do, uh, then we could have some guarantees that what the synthesizer produced was correct. And also uh, programming is often very tedious. So if we could automate a lot of tedious coding by just specifying at a high level what the program should do, then that would be a big gain for productivity. Mm -hmm. So synthesis often focuses on making things uh, more reliable and also making things less tedious. Uh, Program induction often uh, is interested in uh, like kind of AI problems. So the idea is that we're treating a programming language as a knowledge representation. Mm Uh, so, what the system knows and what it learns is going to be some kind of uh, program, and it's going to inherit all of the uh, both good and bad things about programs. So, um, it can be recursive, it can be compositional. So, it can uh, take pieces of some other program and like reuse them. Um, but uh, it's also going to be expressed in code instead of natural language. Mm-hmm. So, you have to understand code in order to know what this is. What the program action system is doing, and if something isn't well expressed as code, for example, if you're trying to learn how to classify digits, then uh, using program action wouldn't make much sense because, um, you know, it's well okay. Digits are maybe a exception, but if you wanted to uh, learn how to classify uh, whether uh, you're looking at a picture of a dog or a cat. Um, I think you know one of the lessons of computer vision is that you want to just get a lot of data and like train a classifier on that, not try to write um, a piece of Java code that uh, picks out the right visual features.
0: Yeah. So synthesis. I mean, maybe this is like a more far off goal. So you mentioned like having these specifications of what the program should do, and then you could imagine having some goal of like in natural language, just saying, "I want a program that does this," and then you know, the system figures out what is the correct program to do What whereas it seems like with induction, it's almost you're given some observed data and then you're constructing something which explains the data or can, it's like a generative model of the data. Is that kind of a way of thinking about it? Exactly.
1: Yeah. Um, so I, I think one of the, um, more well known examples of program induction is uh, the system by Brendan Lake, Omniglot, for solving the Omniglot dataset. Um, he calls it Bayesian program learning. And what he did is he built a programming language for describing motor routines. So the kinds of routines that you would do with your hand in order to draw an image. And the way the system works is it looks at an image and then it tries to infer a program in this motor programming language, which would uh, produce a hand drawn character. And so once you have the program, you can then ask questions like when I see a new image, was it probably generated from the same program and if so, then it belongs to the same category. Mm-hmm. Or you can look at lots of characters and say what are the programs for drawing all these characters and then can I synthesize like a meta program which I can use to generate new programs which will generate new characters which look like they might be from the same alphabet. So maybe, you know, you don't know how to draw characters in elvish um, and so I show you a bunch of characters in Elvish and then you produce characters that look kind of like they came from Elvish because you learned something about the structure of programs that generate El- uh, Elvish characters.
0: Yeah. So then this, this model from Brendan Lake was formalized using uh, in this Bayesian framework. And that's one thing you also did in your PhD work was kind of the, so there's three different parts, right? And all of them. Are kind of formalized in this common Bayesian framework. So could you just talk through like how you arrived at that formulation? Did it just seem like kind of a natural way of expressing this, uh, these problems or?
1: Yeah, I mean, probability just gives you a kind of uh, glue that you can use to connect different parts of a system. It's like a a common set of units. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you can measure everything in like log probabilities. And this allows you to uh, do things like learning to learn through hierarchical Bayesian models, so you can like learn a prior and think of that in probabilistic terms. It allows you to handle ambiguity. So in a case where you have some, some examples and you're not really sure how to best explain them, but there's a few good alternatives, you can use probabilities to weigh those different options. And when you have noise or when you have uh, perceptual uncertainty, so for example, if you're learning from an image and there's some corrupted pixels, then probability also tells you how to uh, fold those uncertainties into the rest of the model. Mm-hmm. So it helps uh, give you a framework for gluing everything together mathematically and feeling like you actually got it right. Um, whereas if you were to use some more heuristic method, then you're not really sure how to like trade off between... Uncertainty at the perceptual level, ambiguity uh, at the instance level, and how to effectively uh, share statistical strength across different examples in order to learn to learn. So, probability and the Bayesian framing just gives you a nice language for doing all of this together.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it also seemed, or in general, like it seems to make things nicely modular. So, for instance, like it naturally falls out of this formulation that you have this likelihood term, which is like given a program, uh, you know, what is the likelihood of the observed data? And then you have this prior term. So it, it seems to decouple things nicely. Exactly.
1: Yeah. It allows your models to be more composable. Um, the likelihood term for one model can become the prior for another model. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, one project that I worked on in my PhD was this um, uh, model of learning rules in natural language. Um, and here we were interested in some uh, rules that correspond to a part of linguistics called morphophonology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have a kind of probabilistic um, Bayesian model for these programs that do morphophonology. but there's other parts of uh, linguistics like phonotactics and syntax. And if you have probabilistic models for those, then you can like, kind of like compose the whole thing together. Um, and one thing that we found uh, helpful here is to think about probabilistic models both for individual languages and also think about a probabilistic model that ties a bunch of languages together. Um, so the idea is that one of the reasons why humans are so good at learning language and also why linguists can become so good at analyzing languages is because they have such good prior knowledge So what we wanted was a system which could learn programs for describing rules, um, both in Swahili and then uh, in Russian and so on, um, and where we could kind of share statistical strength across all these languages um, to learn them more efficiently and also to uh, distill out some higher level patterns about how languages operate. Um, And that kind of gluing together of both the data sets for each language and also the um higher level knowledge that spans multiple languages uh really wouldn't have made sense if we didn't have a bayesian framing
0: do you think that there's something about this um this bayesian framing that kind of does have some connection to how people think i mean this is something that came up in another podcast with uh, aero simoncelli and so he works on on vision And um, we were just talking about how the Bayesian framework is this useful mathematical formulation. Uh, And then there could be some correspondence with how, uh, you know, the way humans think, but then actually like encoding this prior gets tricky, uh, at least in the case of vision. Did you think about that aspect at all? Like some connection with the way humans think, or uh, was it kind of just, purely a useful, um, you know, formalism to use?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, as I said at the beginning, my entry to this was um, taking Josh Tenenbaum's class um, and uh, he's he's very into the, the Bayesian viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there's kind of two ways of thinking about Bayes and the brain. Um, one, the kind of lower commitment way of thinking about it is that if you're trying to build an agent which maximizes like expected utility, um, then it's very helpful for that system to uh, act as though it's doing Bayesian inference. Mm-hmm. So if something's evolving to like maximize some utility measure, and if it's in a world that has uncertainty, then there's just going to be an evolutionary pressure to uh, act in accordance to Bayes' rule. Uh, so you might think that... Uh, learning procedures which uh, act in Bayesian ways would just kind of naturally pop out. But uh, that's that's a much weaker commitment than saying that what's really going on in the brain is that you're doing Markov chain Monte Carlo or you're doing hardcore Bayes or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you could imagine that a neural network, if you just train it on enough input out, inputs and outputs and was trying to like maximize, expect utility, would implicitly learn to act in Bayesian ways in some of the time. A much stronger version of this is that um, the brain is really engineered in a non-trivial way to explicitly represent um, priors and posteriors and to do approximate inference using um, methods that maybe even kind of look like how uh, human statisticians do approximate inference. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I was you know, in a lab which was... Um, uh, I was in like one of the labs which developed many of these ideas. So I was of course influenced by them. Um, you know, I, I, uh, at the end of the day, uh, you know, when I made more of a pivot to being a computer scientist, um, uh, which happened like, you know, in the first few months of grad school, <laughs> um, uh, Bayes for me became more of a nice engineering tool. Um, than a hard stand about like what's going on in the brain.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, it's certainly still interesting to think about. And yeah, actually, now that you mentioned the um, the viewpoint of, you know, this falling out of maximizing utility, that's one thing we also discussed with uh, Aaron Corville when he was on the podcast. So during his PhD, he was looking into uh, classical conditioning. And this Bayesian framework is really natural in in that setting as well. So yeah, maybe we can go to the first, I don't know if it was first chronologically, um, but the first project in the thesis, which is on um, programs and visual perception. So trying to learn graphics programs given 2D drawings. Could you kind of just introduce uh, what this project was about and how you began working on it?
1: Yeah, so this project was really an attempt to operationalize in engineering terms um, a question that I had or something that which puzzled me and that I was curious about, which is that uh, human vision, at least introspectively, seems to go uh, far beyond just recognizing what is where. Um, We also recognize like higher level patterns and uh, regularities, and we can use these abilities productively. So for example, um, I can start building a uh, tower out of Lego blocks, which has some repetitive visual pattern. And I could, uh, you know, start that tower and then some small child could come up and continue the visual pattern, which I had started. Or um, uh, if you're sitting in an auditorium, you can see maybe the entirety of the chair, which is in front of you. And then you see just maybe the tops of the chairs um, uh, beyond that. And you can kind of infer that... um, the chairs beyond you should probably look a lot like the chair that you're getting a good view of uh, just based on some principle of uh, reuse of uh, the stuff you're seeing in front of you. Um, so there's all these kinds of higher order uh, effects that are going on when we're doing uh, holistic visual perception. And I was really curious about these things. But I wanted to turn those abilities into a um, uh, practical AI application. Mm-hmm. So I spent a while thinking about like what that would be. And at the beginning, I looked at these problems called uh, the SVRT, the Synthetic Visual Reasoning Test, mm-hmm. which are uh, kind of like a much easier version of BondGuard problems. Um, but uh, those, I think, were uh, less of a practical application. So um, after a while, I decided that what would be much more interesting is to look at the um, the kinds of diagrams that people make in uh, machine learning papers, because those often have this kind of uh, uh, high-level reuse of program-like structure. So think of like an icing model. Um, If I drew part of an icing model and then included part of it, you could infer just based on the uh, higher order structure of the part that you can see what the included part should be. Mm -hmm. So clearly what's going on in your head is you're uh, not just uh, observing the line segments and the circles or whatever, but you're also learning something about um, a reused piece that in a way, which is kind of like a for loop or like some kind of symmetry operator is being tiled across the entire image and that generates the icing model. Um, And so this... Uh, suggested that we should build a system which uh, allows people to more easily make uh, diagrams of things like icing models or HMMs or uh, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, this project um, I worked through uh, look, training a neural network to look at a hand drawing um, and then infer the uh, primitive strokes in that hand drawing uh, so kind of like detecting the objects like the line segments and the rectangles and the arrows. Uh, but then on top of that, we put a program synthesizer, which would uh, induce a program that would capture the high level structure. So in the case of an icing model, it would say that there's uh, you know, a circle and then some lines coming off of it. But then there's a for loop, which repeats that circle and line segment pattern across the image. Mm-hmm. Um, so once you have Uh, this program you can do things like extrapolate the image so you can draw a four by four icing model and then ask the system okay what would it mean to make this icing model bigger and it can produce for you like a 10 by 10 icing model just by increasing the loop bound so this is uh inspired by like uh the uh lego brick wall that i was talking about earlier uh being extended by a kid who comes up and sees the visual pattern Mm -hmm. um so one thing that I liked about the system is that it really exercised the full Bayesian toolkit that I was talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uncertainty when you look at an individual image as to how to parse it into objects. Um, you can learn to learn across multiple drawings how to better discover these visual motifs. Um, and there's uh, noise and uh, uh, just, just kind of uh, uncertainty at the perceptual level. Uh, because the pixels might be a little bit off or corrupted or something Um, and so the model we built uh, has programs but also has like uh beijing and glue hooking all this stuff together Um, one thing that i think is unsatisfying about this project is the fact that we baked into it the uh primitive types of symbols that are allowed so for example we told the system that it lives in a world that has circles lines rectangles and arrows Mm. Um, and we constrained it to only ever predict those things. Whereas one thing that humans can do, that human artists can do, is they can, you know, look at a new class of images and figure out what are the what's the basic inventory of symbols that does a good job of describing this new domain of images. Um, so we kind of solve the symbol grounding problem by telling it ahead of time what the symbols are. And by having a uh, neural network that could parse the raw perceptual input into those symbols, and then uh, having those intermediate symbols, which are just the objects in the image, acts as a kind of liaison between the uh, raw pixels and the high-level program. So we're going from pixels to uh, the symbolic representation, which has like circles and arrows, and eventually to a high-level program. But we told it ahead of time exactly what that intermediate symbolic representation should look like. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing that I'm interested in doing now is kind of relaxing that assumption and thinking harder about the symbol grounding problem and building systems, which uh, discover both what the vocabulary of symbols should be at the same time that they discover how to assemble um, higher level programs that describe how those uh, symbols are related.
0: Yeah, I see. Do you have a sense of how kind of difficult of a problem that is? I mean, I'd imagine that one difficulty is that there's a wide space of things for the there's a wide space of symbols for the network to choose. And it's not necessarily going to choose ones that correspond to, you know, things like circles and, and squares. But I don't know, maybe there's some constraint based on the way the programming languages uh laid out that solves that or yeah like what are some of the difficulties
1: yeah so that, that's an interesting question um so in theory you should be able to infer a good symbolic basis right from the uh, original input data so in theory if you give it a bunch of line drawings with circles it should infer that the basic symbols in this domain are lines and circles mm-hmm. um, On the other hand, as you're pointing out, um, without some extra supervision telling it what kind of symbols are going to be useful for uh, human beings, it might just decide that there's some other basis which maybe is better in a a particular Beijing sense or is more compressive, but which might be harder for humans to understand. Mm. Um, So... uh, when we built Dreamcoder and applied it to images, it discovers a lot of visual concepts. So it's kind of learning um, uh, symbolic abstractions uh, straight from the pixels and deciding what symbols it should have. But one thing we found is that it sometimes picks uh, symbolic abstractions that are unnatural from a human point of view, even if they're uh, still really good at um, learning how to draw a corpus of images. Mm -hmm. So one thing that one of my main collaborators on Dreamcoder, Kathy Wong, has been working on um, is a system for uh, learning programs where there's some natural language side information. Mm -hmm. And this extra natural language supervision allows you to uh, learn better symbol groundings. So for example, if you see some images with circles um, and you can see that the natural language uh, for each of these images, happens to always have this text C-I-R-C-L-E, circle, mm-hmm. then that should be a really strong cue that you should introduce a new symbolic abstraction uh, called circle. Um, whereas if you happen to have a lot of data which had 17-sided polygons, um, then maybe in a kind of Bayesian sense, the right thing to do is to introduce a new concept called 17-sided polygon <laughs> Um, But if you never have any natural language which picks out a specific word for that concept, then it's probably a bad idea to add that symbol to your uh, set of abstractions. Yeah, yeah. So natural language can kind of constrain and inform the ways in which you solve the symbol grounding problem.
0: That's really fascinating, yeah. One one interesting aspect to me was the idea of incorporating this uh, kind of classical, if you want, synthesis method. So I think the one you used here is called sketch into the overall uh, workflow. So I think like the way you described it is that the neural network or the um, learned component learns to essentially generate hyperparameters or parameters that are used to um, then kind of call this synthesizer. Is that kind of the high-level idea and is this kind of a standard thing to do in this program induction
1: yeah so just provide some background um these so-called maybe classical methods in program synthesis things like sketch or like smt solvers um they're extremely powerful and they also were not originally designed for program induction problems Mm. and so one thing that um, I've been really curious about and done some work on is how we can just tap into all the work that's been done for you know literally decades on developing good symbolic solvers um, and uh, both use them for program induction and also use learning methods in order to make them more scalable. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the hand drawings work, as uh, you said earlier, the way that this integration happened was by using a learned component to kind of uh, learn how to set all the knobs on the symbolic um, search engine, this thing called Sketch, which uh, my advisor Armando developed Mm. um, in order to make it more efficient. Um, And in the case of Dreamcoder, we did something which is similar to uh, an earlier work called Deepcoder, which um, works by learning how to look at a problem, so like an image or some input outputs, and then produce a vector or matrix of probabilities, which then bias a very fast symbolic search. So it's just a very fast, but very dumb symbolic search. But the point is that if it's guided by a learned system, then something that's fast and dumb can actually take you pretty far.
0: Yeah, I, I really like this idea that it's almost like offloading the work to what these different components are good at. So like if we have something which is capable of, of solving things, then there's, no, there's maybe not a reason to have the neural network do that, but rather to learn to call the solver in the right way or to be like a value function within some search procedure. And it seems like that idea is popping up more and more yeah, I don't know if I have a specific question, but uh, it kind of seems like seems like a good path forward for both taking advantage of these uh, symbolic solvers, but then also the benefits of the neural methods.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so at minimum, we don't want to throw away all the good ideas that people have had mm-hmm. in the kind of symbolic AI and program synthesis communities. Um, I think the question is whether we want to use the tools wholesale or whether we want to kind of take um, high-level inspiration from how they operate. Mm. Um, So there is a tension here between um, just taking the high-level ideas and actually taking the software tools themselves. Um, So for example, um, the differentiable inductive logic programming system developed by Richard Evans uh, sometimes called DILP for D I L P, differentiable inductive logic programming, mm-hmm. um, does inductive logic programming. So it's a kind of uh, classic AI task, um, but it uses uh, basically none of the techniques of um, symbolic inductive logic programming. Instead, it kind of compiles the whole thing into a uh, differentiable relaxation and then uses uh, deep learning, so like stochastic gradient descent on a uh, large model um, to uh, actually uh, infer uh, logic programs in this case. Mm -hmm. Um, And then actually Richard Evans did some work uh, a couple years later, um, which you can read about in this paper of his called Making Sense of Sensory Input, um, where he kind of turned that on its head and um, said that he's going to actually use a SAT solver, so a kind of classic symbolic AI engine, and literally using the pieces of, the, or sorry, the uh, software tools that come from that community for SAT solving, um, and is instead uh, doing inductive logic programming that way. Um, and in his latest paper, he's even uh, he's sort of turned the whole thing on its head and is actually learning a neural network um, jointly with the logic program but learning the neural network using a SAT solver. So he sort of started out taking a classic AI thing, uh, inductive logic programming, Mm -hmm. and then just taking the high-level idea and doing it all with deep learning. Um, And now he's uh, doing uh, the classic AI thing using the classic symbolic toolkit and also doing the um, uh, neural network using the classic AI toolkit.
0: Yeah, I see. So overall like after this after this uh project do you have a sense that like you said like one of your conclusions is that programs are compatible with perception uh just like more generally speaking do you think that the kind of messy continuous nature of perception uh there are like useful ways of of marrying this more formal discrete program like setting with that or What's your kind of overall impression?
1: So I think it's helpful here to look at how human beings uh, model uh, objects in the world, so things you would perceive with vision, um, when they have both uh, continuous or messy organic structure as well as crisp, discrete, programmatic structure. Mm -hmm. And if you look at modern CAD engines, um, they allow you to do like, freehand drawing and they also allow you to have for loops and variables and subroutines and recursion and extrusion and polygons and things like that Um, so the representations exist for combining all of these things and we already know that these representations are useful for humans Uh, human engineers use these to design parts human artists use these to uh, do pixar Mm -hmm. Um, and so the question is whether we can come up with algorithms which can operate over those same representations. And in doing so, um, we already know that if we can do that, that we'll get all of the stuff um, uh, that like human engineers can build inside of CAD. Um, but also, uh, ideally, we should get uh, representations that humans can understand and build on and remix and which are really useful for designers and for engineers. Mm-hmm. So one of the draws of programs is that programs really are the representation in which um, essentially all the digital world is constructed and increasingly a lot of the physical world. Um, we you know, inhabit a world where a lot of the stuff, if you are um, a computer scientist who you know, works in an office, a lot of stuff around you was actually designed on a computer. Mm-hmm. Um, so we live in a physical world that is kind of an artifact of the digital world of programs. Um, And whether you want to build a website or whether you want to build a car, um, ultimately human engineers are writing programs. So if we want to make AIs which participate in that whole engineering ecosystem and where there can be kind of a back and forth between humans and machines, then programs seem like a pretty good bridge. Um, And I think that the challenge of uh, making systems which can simultaneously handle uh, messy stuff, stuff that's more continuous, and also stuff that's more discrete and programmatic, um, is already sort of solved by all these programming languages, which allow us to design things that have both of those elements. So the, the challenge is really coming up with the program synthesizer.
0: Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. And then, so there's a whole other section on um, this really interesting project with computational linguistics, which I think you alluded to. In the interest of time, uh, I, I wanted to maybe jump to this Dreamcoder project, which you've also mentioned. And of course we could go back and talk about the others as we go. Um, so this Dreamcoder is a really cool idea that um, draws in this idea of like a wake sleep algorithm. It's again doing this this program induction, but then also has these aspects of kind of learning to build up a compact library of routines for writing those programs. And there's just all these cool ideas wrapped into it. So I, I hope we can go over some of those. Maybe first as like a backstory, did this Dreamcoder project kind of evolve? Uh, was it kind of a result of working on these other projects? Because it seems like more of a, generalization maybe
1: yes absolutely um you're totally right so the motivation for dreamcoder is that i had built these program action systems which involved learning in some way but at the same time it's fair to say that they were basically custom systems for solving textbook linguistics problems or for understanding hand drawings of things like ic models and hmms Mm -hmm. Um, and what i really wanted was a more unified framework which would allow me to build models like that, but also build other kinds of program induction models. Um, so the way that um I arrived at the high-level framing of Dreamcoder um was to first say that I wanted something which was Bayesian and something which had programs. Um, and so Uh, There would be a prior over programs and you would handle uncertainty through probabilities. Um, But at the same time, um, it it was clear that there was not going to be on the horizon any kind of general purpose algorithm for synthesizing programs. Um, There needed to be some kind of domain-specific knowledge, um, which for each class of programs uh, told the system both what the program looked like and also um, how to find those programs. Mm-hmm. So if you're trying to write programs uh, which make web pages, the source code looks totally different from the programs which uh, build physical objects, for example. Um, so any kind of system for uh, doing program induction in more general settings would need to be able to accommodate that full spectrum of different programming languages, and ideally even to learn important things about what the language should look like. Um, This was also when I was running into problems with scaling combinatorial search. So one of the reasons why uh, program interaction is hard is because uh, programs are these combinatorial objects. There's no uh, gradient information. It's hard to know um, how to find a program which does a good job of explaining some data. So uh, what we needed was something which could learn how to efficiently search for programs. Mm -hmm. So... um, in thinking about how to be Bayesian while also learning how to search or how to do inference, um, it became clear that the right inspiration was this uh, sort of vintage deep learning model called the Helmholtz machine. Um, and this was kind of the original wake sleep algorithm and um, it learns a neural network called a generative model um, and a neural network called a recognition model. And the generative model learns how to uh, make data that looks like the actual data while the um, uh, recognition model learns how to uh, do inference in that generative model. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of ported that idea to the uh, program synthesis setting, saying that a generative model would tell you about what programs should look like. So here it corresponds to a library of reusable abstractions. So um these would be kind of like uh, what are the pieces of code which are useful for solving some class of program induction problems. And then the recognition model would be some kind of neural network which would guide a program synthesizer. And you would train these things jointly. So um, you would train the recognition model. So you would learn how to synthesize by just drawing samples from your to model, which means making random programs and then seeing what they do, and then trying to synthesize the program from its behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, And you would learn this generative model, um, this library, by hunting for good abstractions which are shared across solutions to many tasks. Um, Another big inspiration for this um, was this earlier work from uh, the Tenenbaum lab by A.L. Dechter called Exploration Compression. So the Exploration Compression algorithm uh, learns a library of reusable pieces of programs so little subroutines um, and it alternates between using this library to solve new synthesis problems and then updating that library by trying to compress out reused um, uh, pieces of code so you can think of this like a hierarchical bayesian model where you're sharing statistical strength across all of these synthesis tasks and at the highest level, everything is being generated from some library of reusable abstractions. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can write down one big generative model, which captures um, both this hierarchical learning to learn and also this neural network, which is uh, guiding the synthesis for uh, each
0: task. So then the, this recognition model, so it, it's a neural network and it takes in a task or task specification, right? And then it gives a distribution over different programs.
1: It does, yeah. Um, The way to think of it is a recognition model can be anything which looks at a problem to solve and then produces something which can act as a language model over source code. Mm -hmm. So in one limit, you could imagine a recognition model which just um, acts as a unigram model. So it inputs a task and outputs the probabilities of a unigram model. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would qualify as a recognition model in this framework.
0: Yeah. And then what's your sense of like how it does the initial bootstrapping of, of learning? Because I'd imagine like for some tasks, you, you have to sample these different programs. And in order to get some kind of positive reinforcement signal, of having a correct program you have to essentially randomly sample a solution is that kind of the the right way of thinking about the difficulty of the initial bootstrapping phase or is there something which like helps it kind of get off the ground if that makes sense
1: Yeah. so there is something which helps it get off the ground mm-hmm. and that comes from using enumerative synthesis techniques that the programming languages community has already developed. Mm. So it's not really starting from scratch. Um, I mean, it's it's not not starting from scratch in really several important ways, but one important way which connects to what uh, the question you're raising is that um, in the very first iteration of the algorithm, uh, it's not doing any learning. It's just doing enumerative search across a large number of CPUs. And it's exploiting typing information uh, using type inference algorithms from the programming languages community in order to do that search much more efficiently. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's uh, a high-performance program enumerator uh, plus uh, typing information. Um, so it's not just like randomly guessing. It's being very systematic and it's exploiting the structure of the program space.
0: I see. That makes sense. And then the the abstraction step, so where it's creating this library by compressing the solutions, uh, it seems like the, the algorithm for this was, the flavor of it was more of a programming language type solution than like a learned solution. Is that kind of the right way of characterizing it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not really clear to me what learning would do here. Doing So, so first, uh, for background, the abstraction phase of sleep is uh, the part of Dreamcoder, which updates the language in which it's uh, expressing programs. So it's hunting for reusable abstractions, uh, which uh, span solutions to multiple tasks. And this is what gives you transfer, and this helps uh, bootstrap from easier tasks to harder tasks, because you can learn abstractions for the easier tasks and then reuse them on the harder tasks. Um, I think that using learning to do this abstraction would be analogous to using learning to perform gradient descent. Um, you could do that. Uh, you know, people have, uh, there are papers on like, you know, using learning to do gradient descent better, mm-hmm. but to first approximation, like that's not what people do. Um, so if we wanted to try to learn to do abstraction, what we would need is a large corpus of, domains. And we would have to come up with an abstraction algorithm, which worked on like a large corpus of domains um, using learning. Uh, so really, I, I think it's better to think of the abstraction phase as a learning algorithm. It's a it's really performing Bayesian inference, um, and using programming languages techniques to uh, address some of the combinatorial explosions that happen when you uh turn the Bayesian crank on this part of the problem. Mm -hmm. Um but it's it really is itself a learning algorithm. Um but it is not learned.
0: Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's again like I I hadn't seen a paper uh you know like working on these sort of tasks before. So the some of the results I'd encourage anyone listening to to look at them. Some of them were really cool like with this um, it discovers these physics equations which uh, kind of explain the, uh, I guess you simulated some data using the actual physics equation and it's able to kind of compress and, uh, like learn linear algebra and, and things like this. What was kind of, do you have a single task that you remember was like particularly memorable when you got it working or particularly surprising? Cause there's a few of these tasks that you, uh, tested on.
1: Yeah, I would say that visual symmetry was the one that was the most exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, we applied DreamCoder to a range of domains, but the one here that I'm talking about are these um, this domain of drawing tasks. So you see an image um, and you have to write a program which will draw that image. And these images are these kind of uh, geometric patterns. So they're like spirals and things like that. Um, and in the earlier work on um, learning programs for hand drawings of things like icing models, we just told it about concepts like symmetry. Um, But here instead what we did is we gave the system the ability to define new higher-order functions and the ability to do arithmetic and the ability to control a pen. Um, And what we found is that when we gave it a bunch of radially symmetric images, so images like of, think about like a starfish or a spiral staircase, um, objects that have radial symmetry. Uh, what it does is it figures out how to solve all of these radially symmetric problems. And then it does this refactoring phase during abstraction sleep, which um, figures out a way of defining a new higher order function, which uh, can define, which can be used to draw uh, any kind of radially symmetric uh, figure. Um, so th- this was uh, work which, so the drawing domain in particular, I did in collaboration with uh, Matthias Sablé meyer and I would encourage listeners to check out his, uh, so he's really a cognitive scientist at heart and has some really exciting work on doing computational modeling of how humans understand uh, visual patterns, which um, really takes these ideas to a new level and shows how they're behaviorally relevant.
0: Yeah, and in, in this visual case, it seems like the um, the dreams or the, the samples from the, uh, the synthetic samples start to look more and more interesting, too. So that was kind of cool to see.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, the system learns, uh, inspired by the Helmholtz machine, by generating random programs um, and using those to train the neural network. And so as soon as it's learned the concept of radial symmetry, it can then compose that abstraction with any other abstraction that it's learned and produce these uh, bizarre looking um, radially symmetric figures that uh, you know kind of look like a music visualizer or something like that yeah. um, and I think it really highlights the ways in which um, recursion and abstraction, can give you interesting kinds of generalization or um, extrapolation so many of the dreams are much more um, intricate than the training data but in some sense uh, if you look at the programs uh, they're just recombinations of the same abstractions so as soon as you have this modularity and this reuse of abstractions you can actually start to learn algorithms and algorithms can extrapolate in surprising ways Um, and the Images that you're referring to, I think, are maybe maybe the most like evocative examples of that. They just uh, sort of look kind of crazy. Um, so that, that that was really fun to see. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That that's really the um, that's one of the powerful ideas behind this. Is like this the difficulty of learning algorithms, and it seems like this overall paradigm is is a way towards that uh, versus like just like directly using a neural network in a typical supervised setup? It seems like they struggle with things like extrapolation.
1: Yeah, so I'm really of kind of two minds as to why they might be uh, failing to do that. One might be that they suffer from what uh, I think is sometimes called a propositional fixation. So they... Uh, have an inductive bias which is more kernel machine like and encourages them to focus on propositional features rather than higher order features mm-hmm. and this is addressed in the case of programs through having um, uh, like recursion and variable binding um, but the other way of thinking about this um, is that by learning the prior, by learning these abstractions um, they're able to generalize because when they see something new it's kind of not something new mm-hmm. so um, they're not really, you know, like they're, they're definitely not in any sense a blank slate. Instead, they can tap into all of the chunks of code that they used earlier. And if those chunks of code are useful, then uh, you don't need as much data in order to generalize. Uh, although uh, as, when you use these kinds of combinatorial objects, uh, you no longer get all the nice learnability properties of like neural networks. So there, there's definitely a very... Uh, there's a huge tension here um like if you want something which you know can scale to millions of examples and where you don't need um as much prior knowledge then i I think that you know deep learning is kind of the uh the, the obvious choice um and so the question i think is how we can get the best of both worlds and it's not clear to me whether the way of getting the best of both worlds is to sort of keep on pushing what i've been pushing where i take pieces of programming languages and um, sort of old-fashioned AI and then meld them with neural nets or whether the idea instead is to keep everything being a neural net and um, bake into the architecture some of these ideas like recursion and reuse of abstractions or um, I, I think Maybe more interesting, the most interesting, most surprising is this work that I called out to earlier by Richard Evans, where he's actually learning neural nets and symbolic abstractions jointly, but all doing it using a SAT solver. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's, you know, many, many options here.
0: Looking forward, so for the stream coder method specifically, or with other methods you're, you're looking at, I mean, do you, do you worry about any particular limitations Uh, Like, did you run into tasks that maybe weren't included that uh, were just too challenging for this particular system?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So there's two things that I worry about. Uh, One is that what we can do is still very small scale. Uh, These programs are not large. Um, We're not synthesizing, you know, um, anything that looks like the kind of code that you would write in a day of coding. Like, we just can't do that right now. Um, so, I think that if we want this to take off, then we need to really push the scalability of synthesis uh, much farther. Um, the other thing that worries me is uh, well, n- none of these worry me, but more, <laughs> th- these are exciting challenges. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other outstanding challenge is learning programs with uh, both discrete and continuous parts. So this can mean either programs with continuous parameters. So for example, maybe you want a controller um, where uh, there's some control flow inside of it, but also there's like a PID loop. You need to like tune the parameters of the PID loop or you're solving a regression problem. And the equation that you infer for this regression problem has some algebraic structure, but also it's littered with continuous parameters. Um, Or it could also mean something like learning a model that is a hybrid of neural networks and programs. So, Mm -hmm. um, for example, if you wanted to learn a program that described the shape of a tree, you would need to learn a program um, which captured recursive structure, but also it would need to capture the organic details of the leaves. So imagine something like an occupancy network um, so a, a deep neural network, which captures a uh, 3D shape, but where it's being called repeatedly and recursively. Mm-hmm. Um, so these these kinds of programs were much worse at synthesizing. So there's scalability issues, even if we stick only to uh, symbolic domains. And if we want to uh, make this more widely applicable, then we need to more seriously uh, engage um with uh, mixed, discrete, continuous representations.
0: Mm -hmm. I see. Do you usually have a kind of application in mind for driving these different directions? Or is it mostly like looking at the properties, like what you're discussing, like mixing discrete and continuous, and then you kind of figure out uh, what domains can we use to kind of test this idea, if that makes sense?
1: It's more problem-driven. Um, so, my excitement about discrete and continuous uh, mostly comes from wanting to uh, make systems which can better understand the visual and physical world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in order to do that, you need stuff that has both uh, squishy continuous stuff and like sharp discrete stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, a lot of the other domains that um, have excited me excited me excited me um, are uh sort of stuff um from uh cognitive science where i see like humans do x we have good reason to think that that's an important part of intelligence so um i want to understand how we can make systems which do x so that was part of the motivation for the combinational linguistics problem or uh project um where we were saying that uh linguistic students can learn how to analyze languages from small amounts of data there's good evidence that kids can start to understand language from small amounts of data. So how can we make a system which can learn patterns and language from small amounts of data?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it also seems like this is potentially... So one thing I've personally been thinking about recently is like this theorem proving. And so there's informal proofs and then formal proofs. And it seems like this could have some potential connections with this formal theorem proving setting. I mean, of course, there's like this correspondence between programs and proofs but even like the idea of building up a library of commonly used routines is almost like you know building up a library of previous theorems that you then use to prove other theorems
1: absolutely um, so i am interested in uh the connections between theorem proving and synthesis mm-hmm. um so as you said, um, in a really precise formal sense, every program corresponds to a constructive proof and every uh, type corresponds to the theorem that that uh, proof ends up proving. Um, Personally, uh, if I were to go in that direction, I I would definitely need to team up with people who have expertise um, in those areas. Um, the, The kinds of problems which most excite me tend to be things which, uh, come easily and naturally to humans. And I think, uh, you know, doing
0: formal math, um, may- maybe isn't one of them. Um, do you think that, um, having some kind of alpha like challenge would be useful for this area or, I mean, cause not every research direction needs to have one of these grand challenges, but do you think that, that like setting up some grand goal to have would be useful for uh, these style of methods or just in general, like program synthesis or program induction?
1: So I think that um, because program induction is a, a little bit niche, uh, the grand challenge really should come outside of program induction. Mm. So it should be something which um, folks in many areas of AI can recognize and appreciate as being uh, interesting and unsolved. Um, so uh, being really good at solving uh, combination uh, programming problems uh, is sort of an example of that. Um, I think that you know if we could solve that, that would really show that we're addressing this challenge of symbolic scalability that I was mentioning earlier. And I think it's something which Uh, people broadly in AI um, would recognize as uh, representing uh, like real progress uh, in this area Mm -hmm. um, in a way that's like not just going to uh, speak to program synthesis people. Uh,
0: Pretty soon you'll be starting as a uh, assistant professor at Cornell. Did you, I mean, we've talked about some things that you're currently working on and are thinking about for the future, but did you kind of want to just summarize what you're uh, kind of vision or, or plans are for uh, when you start there?
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm interested in scaling synthesis um, for software engineering problems um, and really seeing how learning can be useful here. Um, I'm also interested in um, applying program reduction to things that look more like AI problems. Mm-hmm. So doing other kinds of equation discovery Where you have some data, and what you want to get out is something that looks like a program that you can use to understand um, how that data was generated. Um, But where crucially, uh, a human can go in and read the source code of the program and make sense of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the ways that I think we need to uh, uh, get to more complex and longer programs, and the reason why we need to do this is because uh, synthesis is really most useful when it's actually like writing a lot of code for you um, is we need to uh, uh, work with modalities where there's enough bits of information to justify a long complicated program. So for example, if you're learning a program, program from inputs and outputs, um, then you sort of can't get a program, which is longer than uh, some constant factor times the number of inputs and outputs just because there aren't enough bits in the data to justify it. Mm -hmm. So that means that we need to start learning programs, um, from things like natural language or from places where we have a lot of inputs and outputs. So imagine, um, like model based RL where you have lots of uh, interactions with an environment and every state transition, uh, constitutes another example for the program synthesizer. Mm So trying to push both on the scalability of uh, purely symbolic uh, program synthesis for software engineering applications, and also looking at places in AI where we can use these methods to synthesize a program that might be uh, long, but hopefully still interpretable, and where we'll inherit all the nice generalization properties of uh, algorithms.
0: Yeah, well, definitely, too really exciting directions. And um, I'm sure there's plenty of people listening now who will be uh, interested in, in taking part. Um, I always end the thesis review with two questions. So the first is, if you could think back um, to the PhD process and kind of view it as an optimization problem. And if you had some kind of objective function, which was guiding your behavior, Uh, what would you say it was? Was it um, kind of career driven? Was it curiosity driven? And do you think that it's changed uh, maybe since you started your PhD? Uh, It's definitely changed. Uh, It changed from being more
1: scientific scientific to being a little more engineering. Mm. So at the beginning, I really wanted to um, answer for myself the question of whether program reduction can be a good model of Uh, certain features of human learning and thinking that I was curious about. So our ability to understand visual scenes or our ability to uh, learn rules and language. Um, And then toward uh, maybe the latter half of the PhD, um, I wanted to know whether or not this could be turned into a useful engineering platform. Um, So whether this could be used to address um, uh, problems in machine learning, like generalization um, and interpretability. Um, so the 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 objective really changed. I think. Uh, well, I mean, I, it's basically the, the same, but it it sort of shifted from being more scientific to being more engineering.
0: Yeah, yeah, I see. And then the final question is: If you could think back and come up with one piece of advice. Uh, it could be all-encompassing or it could be just a useful heuristic. Uh, maybe one piece of advice for a new researcher just getting started.
1: Uh, have clear goals. Um, there's, I, I think that any kind of advice that I would give would have to be tailored to someone's goals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really the kind of advice I give would be more at the meta level. Uh, know what you want to do and then do it. Um, so if you are in grad school because you have some questions you want to answer, or you have some problems you want to address, then, uh, point yourself in that direction. Um, you know, if you're here cause you want to like get a specific job, then point yourself in that direction and do that. Um, and you know, in grad school, you'll see lots of people who have, uh, different directions they are headed in. Um, and in general, if you can figure out the direction and then, uh, execute, uh, then you'll be a lot happier and things will work out better.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really great. So yeah. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this. And um, like I said, I think a few times during the conversation, this was a really interesting read. Uh, it; It's a thesis that really touches on a lot of different areas. Um, even within machine learning, it seems like it corresponded to ideas that you see in like reinforcement learning, like metal learning and uh, even things like uh <laughs> the idea of like replay, which comes up in a completely different context. And so it it was a really cool read to see it all kind of in one place. And then for me, it was like a new set of tasks and even a new way of thinking about these problems. So I really enjoyed reading through it. And um, yeah, thanks again for coming on The Thesis Review.
1: Thank you so much, Sean, this was fun.